This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March, 2020. So uh, w welcome everybody. I think we will start. So welcome to the session on disappearing boundaries and disappearing animals. Uh, I'm going to be moderating the session. I'm Will Kimlicka from the Philosophy Department, uh, and I'm co-director of the Animal Politics Research Group here at Queen's, and we're very happy to be sponsoring this uh, panel. Uh, and so we have three speakers today, uh, Josh, Shafan, and Claudia, uh, and we will uh, proceed in that order. So I will first invite Josh to come up. Uh, Josh is a PhD student in the Environmental Studies Program. Thanks, Josh. So, good morning. Um, I'll try not to read too much from my uh, screen here, but there are some particular words I'd like to get across. So I'll be uh, presenting on discourses of disappearance, so rethinking uh, boundaries through ecology, or ecology and boundaries. So as Will said, I'm a second year PhD student here at Queen's uh, in the School of Environmental Studies, and I am studying extinction and emptiness. And there are uh, a variety of ways in which I approach this topic, and today we'll be discussing the ecological side. Um, so my hope is that I will be able to stimulate some discussion among my presenters and the, uh, the audience in general around the way in which we encounter and perceive extinction and disappearance, uh, particularly animal extinction and disappearance, and how this is mediated by boundaries. First, however, before we can explore how animals or things may disappear, we should approach the discussion of how they appear to us. Uh, for it is how the world appears to us that it can then meaningfully disappear. So I'll begin with the question, what makes something something? What is it about a thing that makes it that? How do we describe and explain the way that the world appears to us? And so these questions are inspired largely um, by the work of Neil Everden in The Natural Alien. Um, and I think his words can serve as a useful thought experiment for us today. Um, so to paraphrase Neil Everden on screen, is a solitary gorilla in a zoo really a gorilla? Or is it a gorilla-shaped imitation of a social being that can only develop in a society of kindred beings? To what attempt to preserve, or in my words, consider only a package of genes Sorry, to attempt to preserve or consider only a package of genes is to accept a very restricted definition of animality and to fall into the trap of mistaking the skin encapsulated, or in my words, bounded object for the process of relationships that constitute the creature in question. So hopefully that isn't too heavy, and I know that that is a lot of text, but visually I think we all needed it. Um, what, never, what Everdeen is trying to get across here is that our myopic conceptions of what a species or animal is and what constitutes them limits our ability to respond and perceive their disappearance. Um, a preoccupation with cellular molecules that act as definition for a being is what Tim Ingold calls the logic of inversion. Uh, so quoting Ingold here, a thing or person is converted into an interior schema of which its manifest appearance and behavior are but outward expression. This is the logic of inversion. So there is some innate, inherent structure to which worldly manifestation comes out of. We move outward 
Um, and so this will be, in the time I have remaining, this will be the project of the presentation. How can we move against the logic of inversion? How can we reimagine uh, ecology, species, animals, individuals um, to move away from the logic of inversion? So what I would like to do is for all of us to imagine a rudimentary ecology, okay? So it'll be very basic. We'll have four species in total, and we'll have two bird species. Just call them species blue and species green. We'll also have a one tree species and an insect species. So species blue and species green are insectivores. They eat the insect species. In turn, the insect species consume excuse me, the tree species. And the bird species consume, at such, uh, consume in such a way that the insect species never consume too much of the trees. As well, the bird species nest in the trees, the blue nest in the hollows of the trees, the empty cavities that are, um, uh, the empty cavities of the trees, and the green nest at the base. Okay, so this is our rudimentary ecology. There are some arrows there just showing the interactions. One last detail. The blue outcompete the green for this habitat. So they do not coincide. So the question becomes with this ecology, with this rudimentary imaginary ecology, what does it look like when the blue species disappears? What, how can we imagine this to look? So one way we might explain this is that the green overtakes the niche, if we'd like to call it that, and presumes all of the ecological interactions that the blue once held. So they continue to eat the insects and they, uh, you know, the trees. There's no trophic cascades. There's no knock-on effects. Uh, the ecology in its function, if we'd like to call it that, is relatively stable. It's, it's similar. Sorry, just keeping my place. In many ways, this ecology, the appearance of this ecology has not changed. Um, perhaps the only way we might see a difference is that the material form of the blue is gone. Um, um, but this ecology is fundamentally changed, and I would argue fundamentally different. What now are the hollows of the trees now that the blue species is gone? More than just the material forms have left this ecology, so too has the meaning that they co-created. The trees are lesser for the blue's disappearance. Their hollows stand empty and meaningless. This is not to say that a new ecology is an impossibility. A new ecology we have a new ecology with the greens. I'll return to this slide. But instead, this is to show the idea of an ecology as a complex of bounded, isolable genetic entities is incongruent with the emergent relational ecology that we've just seen. The blues are the blues because they nest in the hollows. They exist there. And I use that term particularly. The hollows constitute them as much as the blues constitute the hollows. Returning to the logic of inversion, the hollows in the trees are not given their meaning by virtue of an internal structure. Their meaning is found, explored, and created. So in our imaginary ecology, looking at this here, um, 
sorry, all of these arrows can point backwards as well. Ecologies and the relations therein are not something enacted upon. The blue is not enacting upon the insects, but they are enacting with. In this way, disappearance or extinction is not something that can be mitigated or managed. Our human conception of ecology and ecological function can only take us so far. Disappearance, in any sense, warps the fabric of the world regardless of whether we as humans are privy to that change. And so with that, I will hand it over to my co-presenter immediately, I know. Uh, and hopefully we can pick up some discussion from that. Hi everybody, I'm Siobhan. Uh, so I wanted to just sort of launch in with a narrative I've been writing about my research. So during my time in Costa Rica, I witnessed the interface of extinction. I found it at the edges of forests, a frontier where the brave and bold monkeys venture to commingle with humans in semi-urban, semi-wild areas, sharing in food, mischief, and pathogens. Sometimes monkeys mistake an uninsulated electrical wire for a liana vine and attempt to swing across it only to be burnt. Sometimes they tumble down onto a roadway where cars are whizzing past. Sometimes monkeys are too bold and too brave. They lose their fear of humans and become vulnerable to poachers who commodify them into pets. We are in the monkey's home, said a naturalist guide once to me. I walked with him through Manuel Antonio Park where the monkeys there seem to me frontiersmen. They are changing with the times. We are in their home and they are adapting to us being there. Unfortunately, the closer they get, they get the more precarious their position. And if they get too close, they might end up in a rescue center. These are sites of animal rehabilitation, which you can visit as a tourist or a volunteer. Some monkeys arrive already a lost cause. They are too sick, too disabled, too habituated to humans. They cannot be released, so they become ambassadors for their species, living out their retirement from the wild in enclosures. As a tourist, it's a privilege to see their elusive arboreal bodies from mere meters away. Then our tour guide tells us about the wildlife trade, the deforestation, and our wonderment is sobered. The monkeys transform before our eyes into refugees, the stateless vulnerable charges of the rescue center, a halfway house for broken animals, a place of hope for some and hospice for others. But it's not too late for all monkeys who arrive at rescue centers. Some have a chance to reclaim their wild lives once more. Those with hope are quarantined from the hopeless in an ironic bid to ensure that they will be safe in in the wild, then they must learn misanthropy. They cannot depend on us if they want to be wild, so when we administer medicine to them, we have to spray water into their enclosure to herd them into a shift cage before entering, and this causes them to shriek and bounce off the fencing like ping pong balls. This is the process of rewilding and decommodifying. Oh, oops, okay. <laughs> Monkeys move out of the forest and into the city. We take them from the city and put them back into the forest. This is the cycle of monkey rehabilitation. Rescue centers are sites of tourism, but they are understudied and underregulated, though they are at the forefront of extinction. My research looks into monkey lives, welfare, and conservation at three centers in Costa Rica in an attempt to understand what factors are leading to monkey endangerment and how the overlapping boundaries of human and monkey populations is exacerbated by tourism. My research is optimistic, however, as I wonder whether rescue centers can, as Juno Perenas writes in Decolonizing Extinction, quote, teach us how to share a future together amid mass annihilation. 
So I wanted to acknowledge my collaborators. These are the four monkey species indigenous to Costa Rica that I have the privilege of knowing personally, and they are more to me like people than any animal I ever thought, uh, and of course the human collaborators as well. So these are the three boundaries I will discuss today, boundaries of care, identity, and place. In writing this presentation, I had been reflecting on the following statement from Donna Haraway, quote, primates existing at the boundaries of so many hopes and interests are wonderful subjects with whom to explore the permeability of walls, the reconstitution of boundaries, and the distaste for endless socially enforced dualisms. To understand how boundaries are formed, shaped, and transgressed requires examining human-monkey relations in Costa Rica, which I represent in this cycle. One of the major takeaways from my last field season was that monkeys are constantly transgressing the artificial boundaries we place them in, be it the immaterial borders of a national park or the strong mesh of an enclosure. As well, the urban development in Costa Rica has generated these borderlands. The number one threat to wildlife worldwide is habitat, ooh, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> is habitat loss. How do I scroll down? <laughs> I just realized it was there. Okay, great. <laughs> is habitat loss, which uh, leads to uh, reduced mobility for wild monkey populations and as a result, inbreeding. You know the old joke, why did the monkey cross the road? Well, don't worry, I have the answer. Monkeys move through these borderlands from one forest patch to another to forage, disperse, or migrate. To do so, they must cross hazardous uh, terrain and infrastructure such as power lines and roadways, putting themselves at risk of collisions, electrocution, poaching, and dog attacks. Monkeys are in tropic where there are boundaries, they will break them. Any boundaries we place around them are inevitably permeable. The phenomenon of wild monkeys transgressing the boundaries of national parks to find themselves in urban areas creates a mutual risk of vulnerability, of conflict, injury, and disease. This might seem like a lose-lose situation. Okay, but in fact, the tourism industry capitalizes on the movement of monkey bodies into urban centers, commodifying the dissolution of place boundaries by creating tourism opportunities around encounters with monkeys. These are, there are restaurants whose popularity is a result of wild capuchins coming to uh, put on a show for the patrons by eating food that's just lying around but is quite obviously put there by the restaurant. Um, you can also go on boat tours of mangroves where squirrel monkeys and capuchins will jump aboard for bananas conveniently on the boat um, and take selfies with people on it as well. Uh, and even though I should mention that Costa Rica has very strict no touch, no feed wildlife laws, which are pretty awesome, and these are illegal activities, it still occurs and knowingly occurs. And I've seen it f firsthand. Um, and I'd like to also signpost here that I've already more or less mentioned all the major threats to primate conservation in Costa Rica, but I wanted to throw some numbers on them. So this is data for, uh, I collected from my last field season that covers 365 records of monkey intake forms from four rescue centers around the country. As you can see, the biggest threat to monkeys has been electrocution, which is quite shocking because I'm told that 98% of their electrical lines are uninsulated, which is you know, for a country that's almost a third natural areas is quite intense. Um, nearly all of these categories are directly or indirectly a result of habitat loss, 
and they also bleed into each other because you have a lot of cases where monkeys were found injured, sick, or traumatized, or some unknown reason, just the person who took the monkey in didn't know what had happened. So it could be that these numbers of electrocution and, and uh, collisions with cars or former pets were actually, are actually bigger than they seem right now. So we've already discussed boundaries of place and the dissolution of the urban wild binary in favor of the semi-wild, which gives rise to semi-wild monkeys. I have some screen grabs here from a photo I took, or no, a video rather, I took of a mother capuchin and a baby on her back parting a crowd. This is in Manuel Antonio, which is the most visited national park in the country. It has millions of visitors every year, and it is also home to notoriously habituated capuchins who steal your bug spray to apply on themselves and also eat your sunscreen and beach snacks. So yes, they, they will go through your luggage. And actually, when this mother was with the baby crossing this like pathway, which shows that they're habituated because the mother and with a child is like one of the most territorial animals you can get. Um, the like male and other capuchin monkeys were going through people's belongings. So <laughs> there is like an unsubstantiated but like anecdotal theory that like capuchin monkeys distract tourists with their babies um, to, <laughs> to ransack your luggage. <laughs> yeah, exactly, a distraction technique. Um, We've also touched on identity as the tame wild uh, boundary transforms from exclusionary, which reinforces who, monkey or human, belongs where, into enabling as the tourism and hospitality industry monetize this boundary crossing as a capitalist opportunity. I want to highlight here the case of Dennis the Menace, and so-called because he is a wild male capuchin who hangs around a rescue center I visited almost daily. I am told he's basically adopted the captive troop, who are all females, which leads to many like Don Lothario jokes. Um, and I've watched him perform a very scary co coalitionary threat face to other wild monkeys passing through his territory, which you can see in the top photo. And I've also seen him receive attentive grooming from the ladies, as shown in the bottom photo. And these ladies also share their food with him that's given to them by the keepers and will fight with each other for his attention and the right to groom him through the fencing the entire time. This leads me into the boundaries of care, since the phenomenon of Dennis the Menace is a case in which we see monkeys transgressing the physical bounding of an enclosure to perform conspecific care work. Human staff also perform care work to rehabilitate these individuals in a way which restores their wild agency. If they cannot demonstrate this ability, if monkeys can't prove their wild agency, then they cannot be released. And this is often the case for those that were former pets. They are essentially, once they're rescued from a, a domestic situation, they are essentially never releasable. Now, the fencing of an enclosure is by nature permeable, and this can lead to safety concerns. I speak from experience having been scratched, pulled, and my glasses stolen by grabbing little monkey arms. Juno Perenius writes that rehabilitation work requires embracing of our mutual uh, vulnerabilities. Monkeys may be our charges in this scenario, but they can actually hurt us and we can hurt them and this hurt can come emotionally or physically. The boundary of an enclosure then is both a signifier of our mutual safety and vulnerability. When you stay attuned to the astonishing amount of emotion and affect involved in rehabilitation work, you start to see the breakdown of social barriers between species and also between human and non-human. We see in the bottom photo where an orphan spider and howler monkey have formed a bond and perform affiliative behavior like grooming and 
embracing despite being entirely different types of monkeys. Uh, you also see it in the top photo where I'm holding a uh, orphaned baby howler monkey who I had just given milk and now he's very milk drunk, if you judge by his like little squint, just like a human child, it's extraordinary. Uh, and raising orphan monkeys is, in nearly every respect, as frustrating, draining, and rewarding as raising a human baby. We are all primates, after all. The human monkey mamas, as I call them since they are pretty much all women, are dedicated in Costa Rica to raising monkeys to a release age. Those that I've interviewed have told me that they cry over the success, uh, successful releases as much as over the failures. Every one of their monkey charges leaves an indelible mark on these caregivers. In a way, sanctuaries and rescue centers are a mirror onto ourselves in that they force us to grapple with the reality of how our actions and inactions have gravely influenced the lives and agencies of wild non-humans. It is a site in which we must come face to face with morbidity, where the threat of extinction hangs overhead. These are places of mourning, a hospice for rehabilitant monkeys who usually arrive already on death row, and a place where resident monkeys, scrubbed of their monkeyness, exist in a place between wild and tamed. These are also places of hope. Monkeys are sentient beings who participate in forms of labor which, though distinct, bleed into each other, all underlaid by the emotional work of care that occurs at the human-monkey interface of rehabilitation. Thank you. When thinking about disappearance, we often think about wild animals or exotic animals on the brink of extinction, um, soon to be gone forever. But we don't think about how animals disappear from us spatially. There are several animals or types of animals that are on the planet in abundance, and cows are one of them. There are 1.5 billion cows on Earth, yet they've disappeared from many of the spaces that humans are in, um, like cities. And this is rather bizarre when you consider how long our relationship is with cows. Humans have been in relationship with cows for at least 12,000 years. Uh, we have spread across the planet with cows. Uh, the domestication event took place with cows' wild ancestors, which are called aurochs, and they were big beasts and everyone was afraid of them and no one would think of them as being docile or tame. Yet that's often what we think of when we think about cows. We think of them as being cute, cuddly, docile. They're big creatures, but more importantly, 12,000 years ago, their ancient ancestors were considered wild, dangerous beasts. So things have changed a lot. And since those early domestication events, cows have moved across the planet. They entered Africa about 8,000 years ago, and they arrived in North America in 1493 on Christopher Columbus's second voyage. Cows have been important tools of political decision-making. They have been used and given across a variety of cultures, and they have been important in terms of determining where humans settle. So the needs of cows, the water needs of cows, the food needs of cows have sometimes been the reason for why and where certain settlements are established. So my focus on disappearance is slightly different. I'm looking at an animal that is for all intents and purposes, if we were to think about them biologically in terms of numbers, doing really well. 1.5 billion cows, wow, you're doing well. But that's not telling us the whole picture. In fact, uh, let me just find it. Did you know that there are 1,408 breeds of cows? 
That's a lot of cows. Yet often what pops into our minds is probably the stereotypical image of a Holstein, which is the milk cow, you know, with the patches. Uh, it's Dutch, for those of you who are interested. Um, or originally so. But what's also interesting is of these 1,408 breeds of cow, 184 of them are extinct. 490 of them are at risk. There are a variety of types of cows and only a very small number of these types of cows have been brought into industrial operations and literally blown up across the world. But for my purposes, what I'm interested in is how the relationship between cows and urbanization is forged. Most humans live in cities. 55% of humans now live in cities and it's expected that by 2050, 80% of humans will live in cities. Considering the long history of cows and humans and that cows were once very much part of urban space, how did cows come to disappear? So that's where my disappearance angle comes in. There were in the 18th before I go there, it's important to recognize that cows have not disappeared from all cities. I know that several of you are probably like, but India, yes. There are many cows still in Indian cities today. And actually there are cows in many other cities. There are cows on experimental farms in Brussels where they're doing floating farms because their solution to the Anthropocene is to bring cows back into the city, but there's not enough space for cows. So they're creating floating farms, trying to find ecological ways in which the cow's poop will be used on the grass in parks and the, the grass from the parks will be used to fed, feed the cows. And that to me seems a bit of a stretch um, for a solution to the Anthropocene. Um, but anyway, there are cows there. There are cows involved in the runs in Pamplona. And importantly, when I say cows, I don't use the word cattle on purpose. The word cattle actually has historical meaning and it means chattel, it means property. I'm trying to disrupt the idea of only seeing cows as property or as commodities. So in my using cows, which I know is generally the feminine form of the animal, it is a double shift. It's a feminist move and it's a move to try and disrupt the idea of them as property. Cows have also been used in a variety of protests. They were used in farm protests in Ottawa. They were marched onto the Capitol Hill. They were used in protests in Brussels because of their out of placeness in these cities. But again, this was not always the case. The smell, the sight, the sound of cows were common. In fact, even here in Kingston, about 200 years ago, there were 200 odd cows in and around where Princess Street is now. 200, in people's back gardens. There were about 2,000 cows at the brewery, which, uh, the old brewery, which is now where the Tet Center is. Those are a lot of cows and they're gone now. Why? And this has happened in numerous cities. Chicago, New York, London, Seattle, they were all hubs of loads of domesticated animals. And these are cities in which there has been some discussion about how these animals have come to be removed. What they found is that one of the reasons why domesticated animals and cows for my purposes have been removed from these cities seems to do a lot with the idea of dirtiness and unruly bodies. At some point, cows went from belonging and seeming to be in place to being unruly and dirty. This has probably got to do more with the idea of how humans' perceptions of dirt were changing. Cows poo, so do horses. And this was part of early economies where people were selling the manure to outside farms. 
But at some point, the smell became too much or the sight became too much. In London, it also became an issue of cows mounting each other. People didn't want to know about animals' sexuality. None of that. My sensibilities, for, for heaven's sake. But in line with some of these cultural shifts, there were also technological shifts that were happening. You were starting to see an emergence of trucks. Trucks were coming, and centralized rail lines were starting to disappear. You had an increase in refrigeration. There was a lot of reasons for why animals seemed to be pushed out of the city. And these are some of the reasons that have already been given. But I suspect that there is something else going on here too. I think that urbanization in and of itself is a process of colonization. And I'm not the first person to, to say this. Uh, Narayanan has said something similar, and so is Claire Palmer. Where urbanization is a form of anthropocentric colonization. That in the act of urbanizing, because we tend to place humans as above animals, increasingly animals, or let me say certain types of animals, right? We still have some animals that are welcome in the city, but maybe in more and more restrictive ways. So I'm curious in thinking through how the disappearance of animals in particular spaces, even though they are still abundant, is tied to our ideas of human exceptionalism and tied to processes that shape our lives. Urbanization as a process of anthropocentric colonization, as a process that is contingent on the disappearance of other beings. Um, I'm going to leave it there for now, because, uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, and then just, uh, so the pictures, just to kind of give you a sense of things. Um, these are just, I was going to be flicking around in the back while I spoke to be all like, woohoo. This is actually in Kingston itself. This is an artistic rendition. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, Denver's known for longhorns. Longhorns are actually Spanish cows that made their way up the, the coast of land. This is from um, London, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where there were loyal, like huge swill milk scandals with infants getting milk that was not appropriate. Um, have you guys ever heard the tale about the cow that kicked over the pail and started the fire in Chicago? So I only made the connection this morning. I was like, ah, oh, it's an old wives' tale that the Chicago fire was started by a cow that kicked over a pail. And there's a reason for that. This is actually Kansas City. But Kansas and Chicago were massive places and cities where cows were in the thousands and thousands in the city, in the heart of the city, which is like This is Chicago. Look at the number of animals, and this is in the heart of the city. Now if you're going, what, the city? What, huh? you, what um, is this early 1900s? Or? Early 19th century. So not actually that, not that long ago. Um, but then again, things started to shift. Because what was happening is people were actually driving cows in. They would come in droves. They would herd cows into the city. You had workers that were being paid very little to dismember the cows and to kill them and then to put them onto trains that would then ship them out of the city. Yep. Yes. Yes. Sorry. I literally always do that. Like, I actually have to Google so often. Like, what is the 19th century? Um, 
And these were just images of cows in cities. But what I wanted to show you is that they're not all old grainy pictures. There are still cows in certain places. Cambridge still has a commons that is still open to cows and cows walk around. Indian cities, cows are often roaming. Oftentimes they've actually been left. People don't know how to look after them and because, oh, they do know, but the cows become old and their yields become uh, too little for, for whatever reason and they can't kill them, so they just kind of neglect them and let them roam. That's not the entire story, but it is one of them. Uh, places like Denver, longhorn cows. This is the floating farm in Rotterdam I told you about. This is a cow being, so that's a Holstein, and this is uh, being used in, look, your capital. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Wrong song, but you know what I mean. Um, the power of milk and protest, but the, the fact that this is a real cow being brought into a city to make a point, and what is that point? And possibly a little bit more gruesome, but this is not the whole picture. And then I just zoomed out a bit. So where did the cows go when they left the city? Well, they went out of the city, out of sight, but that doesn't mean that the number of cows disappeared. In fact, they mushroomed. But because they're out of sight, we can ignore them. We can ignore the ecological damage. We can ignore the number of animals that are there. Um, and I think that this starts to ask questions about our behavior and what this connection is between seeing and unseeing and disappearance. All right, thank you very much. Great, so I guess we now have about a 10, 15 minute discussion amongst the, the uh, panelists. So I don't know whether, which one of you wanted to start off kick off the discussion amongst the two of you. I can. Yes. Something that I was thinking about was, and those images did a great job, even cows within cities, whether that be past or present, um, can we think of that as well as a project of anthropocentric colonization, right? So instead of, you mentioned disappearance of cows being the unfolding of a process of colonization, but could the, could the cow in Chicago could that be, as well, a manifestation of some form of anthropocentric colonization? So the cow actually being in the city exactly. is the, a form of like colonization. The, and uh, um, like the presence, the utility of the cow, the meaning of the cow, if, if we want to use that word. So I think I would caution against the meaning of the cow, because then that's the people's meaning. Uh, I don't know. I think that cows have been historically part of urbanization processes and that their inclusion in the cities was part of how many cities came to understand themselves as cities and how different people within those cities positioned themselves. Mm -hmm. So Chicago is a really good example. Um, you had people that were not being paid very much to dismember um, cows and, and, and pigs. Um, and they were extremely poor, unable to make any sort of other decisions, and they were living right next to the cows. The smell, uh, the, the sight, the everyday, the blood. Um, it's, if you haven't read The Jungle um, by Sinclair, it's actually, it's a novel, it's not an academic book, but it's a really visceral sense of just how closely immigrant lives were entwined with the lives of, of animals. So I think that if you think about a city like that, the actual city's identity itself was in many ways shaped through the inclusion of these animals. Uh, and that maybe that was anthropocentric. I mean, the building of the, the city there is anthropocentric colonization, not only in 
cows inclusion and exclusion, but in the actual city being there, in the building of the city, in the making the building, how many animals get displaced, in the bringing in of cows, how many buffaloes were uh, pushed out, how many foxes were killed, you know, the actual building of human structures tends to lead to the death of animals. So if we think about colonization as being structural violence, is urbanization structural violence in that sense? So I think that when I say it, they're part of the process, it's not just in their exclusion. There are many multiple yeah. facets. I'm just considering one component where I think the exclusion is now the latest manifestation of that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think just like uh, commenting on that, it occurred to me that like also the disappearance of cows from cities kind of tracks the disappearance of um, like animal processing and like the slaughterhouses and all of the factory farming around it has now moved out of, well, most cities that we can think of where it's like out of sight, out of mind, as are the cows' bodies, as are the processes that we put them through. Um, so it's, I, I don't really, it's just a comment. I was thinking about like they themselves as beings and also everything we put them within, the structural violence that we put them within for the food industry and, and, and entertainment and otherwise also moves out of sight. Um, yeah. Well, I think this ties a bit to what you were saying about the tame and wild boundary mm -hmm. and like the permeability of fencing and boundaries. So, I, you know, there's something to be said about when you can see an animal. So like a sanctuary is a place where they're also being seen. So, yeah, like what does this boundary mean in terms of disappearance? So like maybe we can talk together about like what is, what do we mean like, what is between us when we think about disappearance? <laughs> Something I've been really puzzled by, and I haven't even, like, fully formed this as a thought, so we'll see how it comes out, um, is this idea of, like, what are we okay with? Like, rewilding is so much trickier. Like, I come from a zoology background, so I'm like, oh, rewilding is obviously the ideal. We want to, like, put them back in the environment. But seeing these sort of, these monkeys and rescue centers that can't be released especially, those are the ones that are the most kind of troubling for me um, because you have to deal with like, are we okay with them being habituated? So one of the things I look at when I'm like assessing their welfare is like if you're rehabilitating a monkey you want to release in the wild, then they have to be misanthropic, they have to be scared of humans, it's a completely different process. Whereas if you are taking care of a monkey that cannot be released, and monkeys are social animals that live, live in troops of 20 to 50 individuals and maybe there's two of its same species in an enclosure for the rest of its life that could be up to 50 years. Um, they live a very long time. Then do we allow human contact? Um, do we allow them to build like, like cross-species social relationships? When one of the issues I find a lot of sanctuaries in Costa Rica deal with is they really fight back against um, zoos because they now know that like zoos in a Western context have come under a lot of fire so calling themselves a zoo might be bad for their tourism angle and I don't know if I mentioned these are NGOs that rely on tourism dollars um, for their very expensive upkeeping that costs hundreds of thousands American a year um, and I've there there's kind of this pushback there against anthropomorphizing animals and against letting tourists and volunteers see keepers having relational relational relationships, um, like <laughs> affective, emotional relationships with the monkeys there because it looks like we've tamed them when they came already tamed um, and where this, those sorts of relationships can be very enriching to the monkeys' lives. Unfortunately, in the animal welfare 
research I work with, there's not really ways to assess how human relationships improve or enrich animals' lives. So this is a new area. Something that's really interesting there, because when you think about cows mm -hmm. or animals that are out of our view, so animals that we are using, that we are purposefully making out of view, what's interesting is many of the people that are in relationship with those animals are actually there's science to try and figure out how to make them less afraid of humans. So this says something, uh, there's something interesting there in terms of fear. So we're trying to make the animals we care about fearful of us so that we can protect them. But the ones we're trying to use, we're trying to make accustomed to us. I mean, we could probably stretch this to pets too. But there's something there in that dynamic between fear and care that seems to be inverted when you look at domesticated animals versus wild animals. Um, yeah. Sorry, if I can just. Yeah. Uh, it's something that came up for me during, like, specifically you used the word misanthropic. And I was wondering if your thought, getting your thoughts on, um, is, is it really a projection of our own misanthropy, mm -hmm. right? That wildness is this kind of reified state of being uh, and that any that monkeys or any animals that are in relation with humans that is undesirable is uh, are, are lesser I guess or, or or undesirable to use that word again um, does that make sense do you know where I'm going with that like I, I just have trouble understanding why uh, like wildness why like just why do we desire wildness mm. yeah it's something that I understand in like a, from a con like a hardline conservation perspective, it's like they're endangered species and you can't release a monkey that's habituated to humans or is not scared of humans because they'll go into people's houses, they'll cause conflict, they'll like spread disease or like get up to mischief. Um, so I understand it from that sense, but I also, it's weird like the valuing of like wildness and then the, because like having a wild monkey that's scared of humans and behaves naturally is so mm -hmm. prized then it almost feels like the monkeys that aren't like that that have to live in mm -hmm. captivity forever they're like not really monkeys and you know i've seen them so i did a lot of behavioral observation and there's capuchin monkeys that will like steal scrub brushes from the keepers and scrub their own enclosure like which is just bizarre <laughs> i saw when they were like and it was i guess they're like oh i guess this is enrichment like they're doing what they want to do um, they almost always escape. Every enclosure has had a monkey escape from it, uh, which is when I started thinking about the permeability of enclosures, and I thought about it more from a safety standpoint. Um, and then I realized, oh, that like really ties into boundaries and borders that monkeys are always, it's like inevitable, they will get out. They either wild monkeys will come in, like the case of Dennis, and I'm not the one that called him Dennis the Menace, because <laughs> I, I think he's very sweet. Um, but like he actually has had like sexual relations with like the captive females through the fencing, which is just like an insane, deserves its own paper that they can have intercourse through an enclosure and mm -hmm. he could potentially get a captive female pregnant that can never be released and doesn't know how to teach her children how to live a wildlife. Um, and you do get those occasional things where breeding in captivity is illegal, but you do occasionally get the, like, the random pregnancy and then that monkey's now. Um, it's, it's almost like, I hate to say it's like a prison, but it feels sometimes it's hard to like get out of that metaphor of that because they are stuck there, but it's also the best life we can give them with the alternative being essentially like euthanasia. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know if I answered that question at all. <laughs> you, yes, you did. And that's like, I'm not asking that question to say that I think wild, like these are arbitrary and, you know, wildness, who cares? Like, just I try to, I'm having trouble yeah. trying to explore, like, what is it about wildness or the absence of human relations that is so... Uh, yeah, so desirable. And, like, without those conservation, without the conservation issues, what, so I think about, like, what if they weren't an endangered species? Would, would, would we be so scared that they were habituated to humans? Um, and I also find with the environmental education that a lot of centers have taken, mainly against people, like, taking selfies with monkeys or baiting them with food, um, you have to, as someone that's like told off people doing this in parks, if I'm like, you can't do that to the monkey, they, bananas aren't indigenous to Costa Rica, it's too much sugar, they're like, oh. But then if I say the monkey has herpes, most likely, statistically, it's like, don't come near me. Like I've seen kid, people like pushing their toddlers towards capuchins, and I'm like, do you see its teeth? Like, oh my God, just because it's small doesn't mean it's not gonna you know, do something. But the minute I say the monkey has disease or that there's a threat mm -hmm. to the person, um, that changes and it becomes more effective. And it kind of makes me sad because it's not the inherent value of the monkey anymore, it's your own safety. So that, this is yeah. this is interesting again to the relationship between I think many animals and cities is one of the reasons why I think a lot of animals were pushed from cities mm -hmm. is sanitation fears, fears of contagion. Um, mm -hmm. So the wild, to come back to what you're saying, I think is it's supposed to be out there. We, I think, I think we like the idea of the wild more than we like actually being exposed to the wild. Maybe I don't know, because as soon as it gets a bit too wild, like dying of disease is pretty wild. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, it's also pretty normal. I don't know what I'm getting at, but you know, no. like yeah. the, the 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 fear of too much wild. Uh, and maybe d that's where disease comes into play, where I think the boundaries between us versus them become increasingly blurry mm -hmm. because our bodies become more melded. A disease can flow from and between us. We can affect one another. We're actually not that different. Um, we can pass things to each other. And I think that becomes scary because maybe disease challenges our exceptionalism. Maybe disease challenges the idea that we are better, um, you know, because you could kill me. <laughs> you can handle this disease, but I cannot. And that's how many people, you know, at the beginning of, of colonialism, like this is all tied into a lot of these structures. People died. Most people have died during wars and throughout colonialism, not as a result of direct violence, but as a result of disease that was brought from, like people that have managed bacteria differently in different parts of the world because of domesticated animals often. The relation, anyway, mm -hmm. that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> um, do you want to talk more about the sort of like the gorilla in a cage analogy as it relates to like these identities of like wild tamed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think um, so objectively or in a vacuum, um, a being becomes the set of relations in my, I would argue, that a being will become the set of relations that it holds. And so a habituated monkey is a different sort of monkey, right? Or a gorilla in a cage is a different sort of gorilla. And I think the ethical questions have to be uh, centered around those relations, right? Um, we're not saving monkeys in so much as we're saving monkeyness, right? I'm that down. <laughs> and the habitats and the relations that these monkeys have. And so that's where urbanization 
threat that that is the sort of human and colonial threat mm. of 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 those sets of relations. Sorry, I'm circling back on myself, but yeah. That's a really good point. It's like we're trying to preserve the inverted, the inverted being, right? Yeah. This like isolable, bounded monkey. When in reality, I mean, okay, take it to Cincinnati. It's the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. But is it the same? No. <laughs> <laughs> because who you are and the relations you have are shaped by the place in which you are and have them. Exactly. So is a monkey, oh no, we're gonna go down this rabbit hole again. <laughs> um, because you can be the same person. I can be Claudia here in Kingston and I can be Claudia in Chicago, but am I the same Claudia in Kingston and Chicago? So to come back to your hollow in the tree. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is... So my relationships and my life experiences follow me to wherever my, my new place is. But let's say I leave that, that apartment empty. When you were speaking about the hollow in the tree, are you trying to say that even though I might live on or I might die, my relationship with the place in which I have inhabited, so the apartment, changes? Or is it that the apartment itself is now? It's what I was trying to get at with the relationship between the blue bird species and the hollow was that the meaning that the hollow has as a place of habitat is co-created, right? It's not as though we can look at the tree in isolation and say, oh, well, that's perfect habitat for something. It, it is inhabited, right? So your apartment, if you disappeared, hopefully never, well. Um, never. <laughs> never, yeah. Uh, it's no longer a place, is it? It's no longer your place. Just a place of something. And if nothing is occurring somewhere, is that even a place? Or is it, just, is it empty now? It has the meaning that was imbued through your co-construction uh, vanished? Mm -hmm. I think yes. But, uh, yeah. I actually just quickly, I don't know how much time we have, Will. Uh, you guys are doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've got time for one more round, so I can then we can open up. Sure. Um, one uh, thing that really stood out to me was the sense for, for animals in cities. The sense of them was becoming too much, right? The smell. Mm. Um, and uh, so I was thinking about you, what your thoughts would be on desiring a, like, the sense of disappearance, right? Or the disappearance of sense in both senses of the word, right? Um, <laughs> is that, is that, do you see where I'm going with that or should I so, try to better articulate So, that? no, because I think Mick, Mick's paper, right? So yes, exactly. Sense of the world. So everything has a, a feeling of the world, like we, we feel the world. So I think the sense of cities has changed substantially. How we hear cities, how we smell cities, how we are in cities is fundamentally changed because as they become more and more exclusively, and they'll never ever be exclusively human, right? Like we've got bugs, we've got birds, we've got all sorts of animals that we try to disavow. Oh, they don't exist or we ignore them when you see that little bug crawling between your walls and you're like, no. Um, but it will never be purely human, but we're constantly trying to create this, this, this human space. And I think that 
bigger animals like pigs and cows and domesticated animals, I think our sense of place has changed, but I think our sense of relation with them as well has changed. Where now you walk into Metro and you see a hamburger and it's just a hamburger. You see a carton of milk and it's just a milk. It's just a commodity. You're divorced from the animal with which that commodity is part. And I think that that sense of that relationship becomes sterile. And I think that's exactly what industry wants um, because relationships are hard and messy and these are difficult, complicated questions in contending with yourself. So it's easier to consume more when you don't have to hear the cow or, or smell the cow or know about the types of relations that are in place to make your meat and your milk possible. So I think that our sense of relation has changed. I think our sense of consumption has changed. And I think our sense of urbanness has changed. And in my saying this, I don't think I'm saying that cows necessarily should be brought back in. I'm not saying, my, my, my goal here is exactly what you're asking, I think, to try and understand how urbanization is a process that is trying to divorce itself from animalness. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's a really cool way to put it. Uh, shall we open it up for questions from the audience? For any of our three? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have I grew up on a farm, like a really small family farm as a kid, but I have like a kind of um, probably a slightly different idea of like cows than most people. Um, there was def there was like the cow that was like the skier that was scary and you stayed away from and you ran away from and it ran after. And then there was like the milking cow that seemed like docile and friendly and you loved it and you had it for years and years and years. And then there was the cow that was born every year and then you always knew you were feeding it and then your dad was going to slaughter it. He'll call it vegetarianism, et cetera. So as you were talking, I was just thinking like what in urban, like, and to me, my childhood in a very, very rural environment is utterly different than any life that I want, and which is an urban life. And so I was thinking like for people who've never had the connection to like a kind of very agricultural traditional upbringing, um, what could the, the cow and the idea of like urban cow represent? Like for me, I I really kind of innately understand this connection and what it means to have like a relationship with the thing that you are actually raising as a commodity to feed yourself. And in some ways on the scale that I experienced it, it was sort of like quote unquote fine So what's interesting is I have had very few interactions with cows. Um, I think I had an interaction with a cow when I was about 10 and I was taken to one of these like urban farms and I had warm milk squirted in my mouth and it was all very novel. Um, and I had a cow lick my tent in Tajikistan and I was like, ooh, cow. And I saw some cows at the agricultural fair here and I was baffled by how huge they are. They're massive, big animals that if they wanted to crush you, they really could. So it's kind of marvelous and incredible to think about why why don't more cows kill us? Um, you know, why don't more whales kill us? But to come back to your, your question, 
I think the bigger question for me, because I, I don't necessarily, to be in relation, even if I am in a relation with a cow on a farm like you were, it doesn't necessarily mean that I will complicate the idea of killing or, or, or hurting a cow, right? Sometimes it can become even more normalized. It's normalized differently. Um, but what I'm interested in is understanding the process of urbanization itself and the reason I chose a cow instead of a chicken or a pig is in, I think people are much more comfortable with the idea of chickens and pigs in cities than they are with cows because of the size. There's something about a cow's size where they're like, oh, they don't belong in a city. But yet when you see a horse in a city, you don't get that same kind of knee-jerk reaction. And for me, there's something about that complete and utter out-of-placeness, um, which is why I opted for a cow. They're not part of historical urban imaginaries. When people think of Kingston, they might think of horses. They, when they're thinking of, like, why are there cobblestone streets? They're like, oh, no, the horses, of course. They're not thinking that there were runaway cows and that actually University Avenue used to be a, a cattle pound. There's... There's, there's rich history and geography there that's kind of invisible because the more normal the animal is, the more invisible their stories are. And yeah, so it's just to make the mundane visible. Um, it's a bit like, yeah. Let's have a conversation, guys. <laughs> um, in terms of, I guess, our relationship, like I, I, it just got me thinking about when I was a kid, uh, I used to visit my grandparents in Sarnia and there was this little uh, animal farm with goats and pigs and cows and chickens. And I used to love going there, but of course, like it, it made me think that behind those gates, right? So then that's kind of our safe barrier. And then like as growing, growing up, then um, you know, you start to think about the food that you're eating and, and you meet. I, like my whole family eats meat, and then I realized, oh, some people don't do that, right? Mm -hmm. So as like growing up and having this uh, mental adjustment, like, do you think society is starting to change? Like, where do you see see us going towards in terms of our relationships with with animals? Do you see this changing in the future? As because you talked about that, mm -hmm. um, the Anthropocene, that anthropogenic influence. Do you do you see that shifting to something where we're more related to these animals, or are we just continuously moving far, farther apart? Um, I'll say a brief thing on that thing, maybe. I, I, I don't know, but I think we need to. Okay. Um, I think that our relationship with animals needs to be investigated and understood, and what our effects of our decisions are for them and for ourselves should be a question that's being asked, even if it's an uncomfortable question. Um, Will they? I have no idea. But I think that having conversations like this is probably a good indicator that people are, in the act of starting to ask these questions, I'm hopeful. <laughs> I don't know. And I, that just got me thinking about how, in my discussion, the human was entirely absent. So these are questions that I should be asking myself. Um, how do I, you know, or in any... In, in the Anthropocene, are all those ecological arrows as they relate to humans, have those seemingly disappeared or have been imagined to have disappeared? Um, so yeah, I'm uh, sorry, I'm just working through that as well. Thank you for that question. Yeah, I don't know whether we're 
like whether our relationships with animals I feel like maybe it's like a site of tension like geographically maybe in some places people are moving more away like urbanizing cities are moving more away from coexistence with wildlife or domesticated animals and then there's I think maybe in the western world at least there's more of a like a, a general like cognizance of um, like the issues facing wildlife of like industrial agriculture the wildlife trade how some wildlife tourism can be exploitative which is actually the vast majority but it's mainly like the most abhorrent ones that are sort of in like the public imaginary right now um, and I don't know I don't know if I can like generalize that mm -hmm. it's getting better or worse in terms of better being like we have more of an ethical understanding and relationship towards animals and a and a um, recognition of their own like inherent value and their like their need for opportunities of choice and control and agency um, yeah I'm not sure but I think also it's really important with what you said is urbanites might have good ideas about our relationship with animals and oh the forests down there are getting burnt and you know the orangutans in Indonesia are being hurt and we, we might know these but I don't know how much we take responsibility for them because the biggest consumers of things are urbanites we drive cars we shower more we and not all urbanites like not all cities equally right but in a North American city we're using more and we're consuming more of of everything right which impacts the world beyond the city more so I think the people that are possibly more engaged with 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 the monkeys, the whales, or the, the even even those who are working in factory farms, or they are not necessarily the people that are driving up what is causing the loss of biodiversity or the loss of animal life. Or oftentimes it's urbanites, and and for me this is where that disappearance question comes in: is is in that invisibility or in the only seeing it in a documentary, or what what is the significance of that? Um, or is it okay that it's in, do, do we have to see something up front to make it real? Maybe not, because maybe we see it and it's still, I don't know, I think we need a reckoning. But, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, I hope this question isn't too annoying and I'm just trying to like articulate it. Um, but I'm just thinking about, um, at one point someone talked about the idea of the animal as a bounded mm -hmm. entity to an extent, and I'm sorry, I was a bit late, so I'm not sure how it relates to presentation but in terms of of cows and monkeys and sort of the other beings that are implicated in the sort of boundary based discussions that you're talking about whether a, the, a fly in the case of a cow or the bugs on the body of a monkey or even like to a more microbial level like the diseases and the contaminants that are spread between people and sort of I guess the question is how you kind of make sense of those um, given that maybe being that you're focused on is the more charismatic sort of one that we can more easily mm. relate to. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, um, I might have, at least for the panel, a radically different take on individuals. And I, I, in, um, I think a lot about, you know, like when I inhale, where does the air stop and do my alveoli begin, right? Like, where where can I draw the boundaries that make me me, right? Um, and I, maybe those are imagined. I think that they're, to a large extent, imagined. Um, so yeah, I mean, I. My supervisor has a great paper on this, 
Tuatara, which is this you know ancient lizard basically, and uh, but it has a very specific relationship with a tick. And uh, but the Tuatara is the focus of a lot of conservation conversation, but not its tick, right? And so, yeah, everything you know, nothing. I don't think things can be isolated, right? Ecologies are the air and the lung, right? It's the, where can we draw those boundaries? Um, sorry, that was kind of rambly, but I hope I got towards the question. So myself and Josh, I think, have pretty, because I agree with Josh. I think everything is based, but I'm more relational. I, I wouldn't say the ecology is what's interesting. I think the relationship between, so me and Josh, whatever the thing is between us, that relationship is interesting. But I think your question are two parts. One about unwanted animals, so animals that we don't find sexy, like monkeys or cows, and two, how we understand them. But to speak to Josh, I, I'm reluctant to let go of the individual entirely, even though I put, I want to understand the structures and the relationships that make a cow be known as a, something that is docile or, or a monkey as something that needs to be saved or a tick as something that needs to be squashed. But I also think that that particular cow has a story. Where was it born? How did it get there? How has its genetics been manipulated in order to produce more milk? What has that meant for the pain in its back and in its knees? Because as a being, it is. So like I'm reluctant, maybe it's because I'm reluctant to let go of Claudia. If I fully let go of, because <laughs> if I am nothing but the air I breathe and the microbes in my gut, then I am not. So I think the amalgamation idea is cool. But I also like the idea of looking at animals that are also not sexy and maybe that's also making the invisible more visible because many microbes keep us healthy and spiders keep things awesome. Um, I, the first thing I thought of, which I don't know how like helpful this is, was that like I have like in my own mind a fake rivalry with sloths because sloths are the new sexy animal of Costa Rica. Uh, and I feel like they've taken, I'm like, oh, they just sleep all day. Like monkeys are so much more interesting in my mind. But a lot of tourism is now centered around sloths and holding sloths and going, res going to rescue centers to see them. Um, and I mean, I don't want to say they're not interesting. They are interesting. And for me, the most interesting <laughs> part about sloths is that they have this like symbiotic bacteria and algae that grows on their back. Mm. So the sloths in the wild, it's like very hard to actually spot them because they're usually like slimy and green. And that is not something people want to think about when they think about wanting to hold a sloth or like feed it or give it milk or something like that. Um, so when I like tell tourists that I'm like, no, like sloths in the wild, they're not like look like they've just had a blow dry, like they're <laughs> kind of gross, like by those terms. But that's what makes them interesting is that they don't move for most of the week. And but they've got this whole like microbiome going on around their body and that they when they come down to like go to the washroom, um, they move to another tree because they know that like they don't want to attract a predator there. So they have these complex lives, even though it moves at a very slower rate. Um, that I don't I don't know. I was kind of thinking about this idea of like sexy, charismatic species and how so often to like shore up conservation efforts and care requires emphasizing an animal's ecosystem services, uh, meaning like what they do for the environment, what their ecological role is. Um, so for example, with monkeys, it's like seed dispersal, which in itself isn't particularly sexy. Um, doesn't really mean that much to a lot of people. Um, but animals like certain birds will follow monkeys around the country, eating the seeds that they drop or the monkeys attract other animals and then they'll get the prey. And they have this kind of like, con what do you call it, convoy? Convoy 
moving around the country of all these different species, which I find fascinating, but it's not, because none of this, almost none of the species that I'm like focused on are like imminently endangered, I find sometimes I get frustrated <laughs> around like trying to get uh, conservation attention around it because I rarely, in my interviews with key informants, rarely is actually the endangerment of monkeys brought up. And that for me, I see, especially with capuchins, being as behaviorally flexible as they are and intelligent, I see them becoming potentially in the future like a macaque situation that you have in North Africa and Southeast Asia where they're like in people's homes and they've really become urban animals. And I don't know if maybe people don't know about those situations and the conflict issues with macaques um, globally, but I find that that's what I like foresee as like foreboding in the future if, if urbanization continues and there's no sort of safeguarding infrastructure to keep out. But then again, how do you keep out monkeys when they break every boundary? So it's kind of like an intractable problem right now. Um, and I didn't answer your question at all. I just talked about <laughs> well, I, If I can just, um, with the individual, uh, I, I was just thinking, I mean, I, I think Focusing back on ourselves helps illustrate some, uh, the point that I tried to make, try to make. Um, if I try to think of something that is characteristically Josh, right, I might think of some attribute. And I'll internalize that by thinking, okay, uh, Josh is generous. And then I'll think, yeah, I gave here or whatever, my time, right? And so suddenly I'll make that relationship Right, that action and that relationship, mm. I'll internalize that and make that concrete. And so that's where the idea of a Josh's self you know, comes sure. from. So all I'm trying to say is, and this relates back to your question, uh, my problem isn't with individuals. I, it, I mean, I think it's demonstrably true that individuals exist, okay. but that individuals cannot be taken out of context with the relationships that they hold. They cannot be treated as bounded in that sense. And that's all I was trying to say. I, and I think we're I, totally in agreement. I, I agree. We often just <laughs> speak different languages. I think my, my concern was so once I, I started to try and write a paper, um, I was trying to create a theory of rumination, which I thought sounded very fun, um, using cows and their, because rumination is the act of eating, and then it sits in your stomach, and you spit it up again, and you eat it again. And that's how we think about thinking, right? Let me ruminate. I'm going to sit on this. I'll think about it again. So I was like, ooh. I'm going to create a theory of rumination. I thought I was being really smart. Um, it was for a paper in philosophy, so I was like, yes, this is, this is going to give me some brownie points. But then the more I started to get into it, I started to realize, oh, the cow's stomach is broken up into these four chambers, and I became more and more interested in the microbes. And increasingly, at some point, it was about two days before the paper was due, and I realized I was no longer talking about the cow. At some point, the cow with which I was concerned became invisible. And that's why, for me, like, I agree, the relations are important. The microbe is as much a part of the cow as the cow is of the microbe. Mm -hmm. But I was reluctant to fall into a place of just complete and utter relation. Like, the cow is constituted by its relations, but that cow, let's call her Sally, exists. She is... Mm -hmm. in the world mm -hmm. and she is in relation with the world as as a pro as a practice as a process as mm -hmm. a as a being um so that's why i have a reluctance um, but i don't yet have the vocab to to try and express why or how <laughs> totally fair i wonder if it's worth talking at all about um 
how you mentioned urbanization is a form of colonization, and how often we move into urban centers, it entails the disappearance of many species, not necessarily disappearance, but the disappearance of our experience of them. But it typically, there's also an increase of a certain engagement with those species through a cultural lens. So there's cartoons and art galleries and stories, and, and in some ways that's almost enriched in urban centers, that semiotic diversity, as I call it. Um, <coughs> but I wonder to what extent those images, like say Chippendale, like the cartoon, or Dumbo, or, or any of these sort of things, to what extent they reveal, but to what extent they also conceal that animal that they're representing. Um, I know in, uh, in the Malay culture in Southeast Asia, there's a complete taboo on any cartoonization of animals whatsoever. Like it's one mm. of the highest taboos. And I think that's worth thinking about in this context. And I wonder uh, about this sort of dichotomy between appearance and disappearance in the universe. Mm. You see more images in some ways, but less contact with actual beings, mm. what effect that might have. And what responsibility does that offer us as educators, as communicators, how we talk about animals, how we exist? So, so like, I, I do think cognitive dissonance is real and I think it's a thing um, so I lived in South Korea for a few years and um, there's Sangyeopsal which is like these really thin slices of pork and you eat it together around a table it's a communal table with a flat stovetop and you slice it up and you all sit there and you eat communally and and Korean food is really beautiful in that way and that you eat together but a lot of the images in cities are of cute animals. So you'll literally be eating an animal with a really cute cartoon of an animal looking at you and there's very little conflict. It's it's just, it's it's a cute animal that I love and, um, but you don't make the connection between the image necessarily and the fact that this is a life. And I think maybe it's also in terms of how we think about domesticated animals in particular, but maybe all animals. And this, this maybe comes back to what's a much bigger question about, we speak about animals as individuals, we speak about animals as beings, we speak about ecologies, but I think we'll be happy here. Um, but animals are also property, right? So they don't really have a say in, in cities. So they can be bought and sold. So even, I think, symbolically and materially, right? They, they, they have no actual ownership even though they have agency, they have no ownership of how they are portrayed in our world. We get to determine the narrative in cities. We get to paint pretty pictures of urban landscapes on them in cities and say, I mean, I think they have agency. I'm not trying to say that, but but I do, I don't know, there's there's something there in that they, they are not being, we don't see them as having their own agency. We see them as being our property, something that we can buy and something that we can sell. Um, but that's not directly to your point, but I think it's related. Well, I think it's related because even just the capture of an image is a certain form of containment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And And that's, I'm 
part of my work moving forward is on the very idea of knowing an animal, right? Um, or anything at all, right? That we can know it, uh, that we can take a picture of it or, or, or write about it, um, and what implications politically that has. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if that added anything to the discussion, but I just thought I'd do it. Yeah, I think you're recognizing our sponsors as well. Yeah. The way that we write and what we write about and what's not this and that perhaps there's something unknowable right, completely other, that we can never begin to appropriate or approach or know. I'm also just cautious of that because sometimes I think that that is used as a reason to not consider what animals need. How can we know what they need? Like, and I know that that's not what you're getting <laughs> at here, but I, I do think that it's something we need to, because that's used as a critique often. So people will say, oh, the monkeys need this, and then people will be like, how can you possibly know what these monkeys need they can't speak English you're like well we've we've figured it out like body language and pain I think we're pretty clear when we're in pain um, so like that's just a flag um, not I think we should all think through how we can know each other better and animals better I agree um, but just that that shouldn't be used as an excuse our differences in communication shouldn't be used as an excuse to not yeah, and that's exactly that. By no means did I want to come across as saying that. It was more of a, we'll never be able to approach an absolute idea, right? A complete explanation for some phenomenon, right? There's always, that's the, you know, um, there's infinity in semiotics. The, you know, layers can always be added. I hope. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if you disagree, Jason. But. You guys are also welcome to just talk with yeah. each other and engage? Yeah, mm -hmm. um, one thing I was thinking about was the sort of imaginary of monkeys as being sort of like a barrel of monkeys. Like there's a lot of, for example, I think I've used like every monkey pun. Like I have like monkey work, monkey business, monkey play, like all of the titles of my writing. <laughs> monkey and around. Uh, so there's like no deficit in like imaginaries of monkeys. And one of the things I thought was interesting was when I was leaving the airport after my three months of field work last year, uh, yeah, last year, last summer, um, there were like stickers that you could buy of like monkeys for, like drinking beer um, and like just like goofy cartoons. And I'm like, oh, these have like a more sinister tone now because I interviewed people who say that like there's capuchins that come by their like bar. And if you've been in Costa Rica, there's like never any closed walls. So you can always get in through like a, no, an open roof, a window or a door. It's very rare that you have an enclosed house, which is now occurs to me is very interesting in terms of boundaries. Um, and monkeys will come there and get drunk and they get addicted to the sugar and the alcohol and they become, in this like, the person I was interviewing's uh, mind, alcoholics. Uh, and so there's, but there's this kind of imaginary which I got from a lot of interviews with local people of monkeys as sort of like ne'er-do-well toddlers, kind of like, oh, like that rascal. Um, and what I found was interesting was, so I would have them associate different like adjectives with pictures of primates because they didn't always know their the name or they had a local name for the monkey. And almost no one ever said that they were pest monkeys or dangerous or like disruptive. There weren't a lot of like the conflict narratives that I thought would happen, 
but there was an acknowledged understanding that they were like rascals. And I interviewed a fruit seller who has monkeys come by every single day and steal his food. And he's like, oh, like there he is, like El Jefe, that's the chief. And he knows the entire social structure of the troop. I'm like, they're taking notes. He's like, they've been coming for like 10 years and I like throw them the old bananas. And like he knew, and he's like, oh, look, he's flirting with you. And like, the monkey was like, <laughs> like, I don't think he's flirting with me. And he's like, like whistling at the monkey to come over. And I'm like, please don't come over. There, I can see there's like 20 monkey bodies behind you in the tree. And the chief is like the one showing his like, his face smiling at me. Um, <laughs> but like that sort of like local knowledge was really interesting to me that this monkey is like directly affecting this person's livelihood who is in a lower income class, um, as hard as it is to have any sort of social mobility in Costa Rica. And yet they're seen as kind of like these, like almost, I, I find there's like the ch this childness, childness about perceiving them and this, um, mischievous. yeah, this mischievousness. Um, the words that were most often used were like sneaky, friendly, uh, like smart which I thought was incredible because I know that monkeys are like a huge issue that they come into people's homes and steal their food or fight with their pets. Um, and another thing I thought was interesting was that when I asked local people directly and said, are monkeys more endangered? Do you, have you found, especially with the older folks that were over 50, I'm like, have you noticed that their populations have declined? They'd often say no. Um, and to them, which was hard for me to wrap my mind around, kind of getting into this idea of like, what animals are special was that to them it was like often having a raccoon like do I I mean I love raccoons but like the average person do they care much about like a mouse or a raccoon and to them it was like yeah there's like a monkey outside in that tree right now mm -hmm. and to me that's so exotic um, so but when I asked them about whether they thought monkey populations were decreasing was often no but then they'd say stuff like oh but now they're over by the mountains they used to be my by my farm or they used to wake me up in the morning with the howling which is like the loudest mammal call of any animal any land animal um, and now they're like way over there and it doesn't wake me up like when I was a kid so there's been this like recognition that they've moved but not why um, and that's something that I find really interesting and I'd like to like look more into That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.